Well, if you came today knowing that we were going to be talking about how to go deeper with God, uh, then you may be wondering, why in the world would we show a man-on-the-street interview clip like we just viewed, where basic questions like, is there even uh, absolute truth? Does reality change? Uh, Is everything relativistic? What's right for me may not be right for you, and what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. You know, in light of that, it begs the question of where is God in all that? And obviously the cultural message that we are, are hearing about all the time, that we are inundated with all the time, is that uh, things are relativistic. There are no absolutes. And so it basically has an underlying presupposition there is no God. Uh, Some of you may have seen the story this past week where there are four families in Ohio who are suing their school. And as it turns out, this school has just been rampant with bullying. And uh, these four families are suing the school because over the course of two years, each of them had a child who committed suicide due to bullying. And they gave a number of excerpts in the story, if you saw the story, about what that bullying looked like. It was, you know, in my mind, awful. The kinds of cruel jokes and tricks that were played on these kids and the uh, racial and gender-based kinds of slurs. And, you know, they'd be walking down the hall and somebody would come along and pop them in the head or slap them or trip them or knock them down, threaten them with bodily injury. And uh, one by one, in this very same school, these kids finally said, I cannot take this anymore. And so they took their lives. A couple of middle schoolers, a couple of high schoolers. Now, if what we just saw in the video is true, that there are no absolutes, there's no basis for right and wrong, it's all relativistic, depending on how you see things, depending on how I see things, and so on, then who's to say bullying's wrong? It may be right for me. Who's to say that suicide is tragic? Just another option. Who's to say that a school should be accountable for any of that? And on and on you can go. Once you begin to remove God out of the picture... You find yourself in a quandary quickly. Now, even though most of our culture may not even recognize how God is at the base and the standard of all these things, he is. There is some standard against which everybody is saying, here's laws. Here's what we will say is illegal. Here's what we will forbid you to be able to do. There's some standard, and in our country, that standard began with God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And thus no way to say there is such a thing as appalling wickedness. So in this place, we believe there's a God. And we believe that he created and brought this world into being and all that is therein. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us to 
get to know this God, began to align our lives with this God, and do life in harmony with this God. See, there is an absolute. The battery has to go in the right way. And that was a planned illustration. So, um, you know, the... And it really is kind of humorous. The funny thing, can everybody hear me okay now? Anybody not want to? (laughs) Really, the funny thing about this is I'm sitting there while we're worshiping. And I know what I'm going to talk about today. God's kind of been stirring me about this for some time. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, this may be the most important message I've ever brought to this place. And I don't remember <laughs> another uh, crazier example of uh, uh, technological fail as we've just had. So anyway, why don't we pray? So God, uh, you know where we are mentally and emotionally right now, and we pray that your spirit would seize our hearts. You capture our thoughts. You commune with us at the core of who we are. And Father, whatever word it is you have for us today, would you speak that in ways that we can comprehend and in ways that we are compelled to respond to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. All of that to say, we believe God's real. And that God is the basis of the standards of what we consider to be right, wrong, good, bad. Um, And so it behooves us to get to know who this God is. And so we're going to do that. We've got a number of hard questions today that we're going to be trying to address about God, the person of God, the activities of God, the plans of God, things like that. Uh, they are troubling indeed. They are, are troubling to people for centuries now. They, these are the questions that cause a lot of people to conclude, if there is a God, I don't want to have anything to do with him. These are the kinds of questions that cause a number of people to bitterly fold their arms and turn away from God rather than turn to God. Uh, and so, by God's grace, we're going to do the best we can to identify some of those questions and issues and allow him to speak into our lives about it. First is this, what is God like? What a huge question. I'm only going to say three things about that. One of those is this, God is terrible and awesome. Psalm 47.2 tells us, For the Lord, the Most High, is terrible. A great king over all the earth. Now, that's the old ancient English version, the King James Version. And they took that, that Hebrew word and translated it terrible. Now, by that, he does, the writer of uh, this text is not, you know, making a play on what Charles Barkley, the NBA analyst, calls when he sees a guy making a really bad play. That's just terrible, terrible. He's not talking about something that is bad in that kind of sense. Rather, he's talking about something that is fearsome. 
something that is so powerful, so mighty, so majestic, it causes people to tremble. Now, if you have a more modern version, if you're looking at the NIV or the ESV or the NASB, etc., and you're going, what are all those? Just different English renderings of the same ancient text. Most of them use the word awe-inspiring or awesome. So which is it? Is God terrible, fearsome, or is he awesome and awe-inspiring? And the answer to that is yes. He's both. That's why both translations are absolutely credible and appropriate. Because God is terrible, fearsome, mighty, and he's awesome and inspiring and life-giving. Now, someone that I think really got at that well is C.S. Lewis. And some of you have already read my little paragraph on the newsletter that went out this week. You know why I say that. In uh, his story about Narnia, he tells about a land where it is winter all the time, but never Christmas. Let that sink in. And the reason why Narnia has become this cold, uninviting, Christmas-less, godless place is because of a wicked witch. Now, there are four children that stumbled into this world called Narnia. And as they're trying to make their way around and and make sense of it all, they encounter a couple of little creatures, a couple of little beavers who talk. And as they begin to engage these little creatures, the creatures take them home with them and feed them. And they're kind of cluing them in on why Narnia is the way Narnia is. And one of the little creatures says, but I also have heard that Aslan is on the move. Now, Aslan is a lion, this great, majestic, powerful beast that is a Christ figure in the Narnia story. Aslan is on the move, meaning that he is coming and that he's going to make his presence known and he's going to overcome the wickedness of this witch and he's going to restore Narnia to the way Narnia was intended to be. And the smallest of the four children then inquires, hearing about how great this lion is, is he safe? And the little creature says, no, he's not safe, but he is good. God is not safe. God is terrible. God is fearsome. God is mighty. God is all the might in the world. But he's also good. And he's awesome. And he's awe-inspiring. But even as we get at all of those descriptors for God... They are all secondary type descriptors after the primary descriptor that we've been talking about over these weeks. And that is God is holy. And I don't have time to unpack what that word means. We've been doing that for three weeks. The short of which means that God is separate from all of us, not like us, separate and transcendent, far above all of us. And in his holiness... He cannot entertain unholiness, unrighteousness, impurity, wrong. His holiness demands that everything and everyone around him likewise be holy. And so God decides he will create 
humanity. And he creates this universe, he creates this world and all that is in it, that it can sustain the life of a human creature, you and me. And he decides to create us in his image so that to look at a human would be able to see a mirrored reflection of God himself. To be able to look at this man, to be able to look at this woman, is to get some glimpse of what God is like. It's a mirrored reflection. And therefore, we are to be holy as God is holy. We are to be separated to Him and separated from anything that would pull us down from His creative intent in us. What is God like? He's terrible and awesome. He's good and He's holy. And he has a standard against which is sin. When we come beneath God's creative intent for us, we are a sinful people. That word sin, harmatano, comes from the world of archery. It's this idea of shooting an arrow at a target and not just missing the bullseye missing the whole target, falling to the ground, falls short. Romans 3.23, we've all fallen short of the standard of God, the glory of God. And so it kind of begs the question, gosh, there's so many sins. You know, there's murder and adultery and there's slander and lie and gossip and there's stealing and on it can go. What? What? Is the most grievous. What is the greatest sin? What is the greatest shortcoming that has befallen humanity? And I agree with Martin Luther's response. Martin Luther said, well, if the greatest command God gave us is to love him with all our heart, then the greatest sin would be not to love him. With all our heart. And basically every sin is birthed out of that greatest sin. Every sin is a matter of our not loving God. And not loving him greatly. Not loving him well. And so. When you begin to look at that in the context of the scriptures. The word that comes to mind about not Being in alignment with God, not loving God well, not honoring God, not exalting God, not giving God his due. It's the act of treason. It's the act of rebellion. That is exactly what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve decided forbidden fruit, I'm going to eat it. This wasn't a matter of that just looks so tasty. I got to have a taste. This was a matter of saying, I know you declare yourself to be Lord, but I'm going to usurp that and I am going to be my own Lord. If I want to eat this, I'm going to eat this. And it was the ultimate of disrespect and dishonor of lack of love. And thus we were all, all of humanity, propelled into a sin nature, fallen condemned state from God for treason. Now, we have to hasten to say most Americans do not get it about what a heinous thing treason is. 
Most of us just don't get it. I mean, uh, you go back to any point in history, and I did a quick survey. I'm not going to take the time to unpack it. Uh, but you go back to any point in history, treason has always been an act that would warrant execution and death. Any culture, any, any part of the world, any time in history, it's always been that way. You go, oh, that's, just, that's just primitive stuff. You bring it all the way up to 200 years ago in the civilized portion of the world, the British Empire, the act of treason was punishable by dragging your body through the streets behind a horse and then hanging you and then quartering you, cutting your body into fourths and then displaying those body parts at different points of the town to deter anyone else from treason. And it was, you know, that same time period that we were being settled in this country, the new world was being founded and explored. And uh, one thing led to another, and we decided, well, we're going to go independent. We're going to break away from Britain. And, of course, we entered into this revolutionary war. And who is the most notorious character in all of the Revolutionary War story? It's a guy by the name of Benedict Arnold. Why? Because of treason. He had risen in the ranks quickly in the Continental Army until the point he had become a general. But in the next promotion, for the next level of general, he was overlooked and somebody else got that promotion. And he was so angry and he was so incensed and he was so resentful about that, he decided he was going to go over to the British side and betray the new Americans, the Continental Army. And so he was given charge of West Point. And he had determined he was going to undermine the security of West Point and uh, allow the British to come in and, and overtake it, which would have been a very strategic point in British strategy to you know, overcome the colonists. And George Washington discovered that Arnold had that plan. He thwarted that plan, and Arnold was able to get away before Washington was able to capture him, and he defected to, to Britain, where they made him a brigadier general and gave him a ton of money. For his treason. We don't get it how heinous treason is. It's always been a capital offense, anywhere, all the time. And we are guilty of treason against God because we're in His image. We are the mirrored reflection of the great, awesome, mighty, fearsome God. And yet, by the way that we choose to live, by the way we choose to lord it over ourselves and reject His Lordship, we say to every bird of the sky and every creature upon this planet, see, look here. God is adulterous. God is unfaithful. God is slanderous. God is a liar. God is a cheat. By the way that we have taken on fallen characteristics we have defamed God and we are guilty of high treason now we're going to look at a couple of biblical case studies of how this plays out and these are some of the really troubling pieces and so I'm going to encourage you to get your Bible and first of all we're going to begin in the Old Testament and we're going to look at the book of Leviticus 
And find chapter 10 there. And we're going to be talking about a couple of guys by the name of Nadab and Abihu. Those are fun. Say those three times real quick. Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu. These are sons of Aaron. You remember who Aaron is. Aaron is the brother of Moses. And Aaron is the first high priest among the people of God. And his sons are likewise now priests. And this is before the days that they settle in, you know, the promised land. This is well before the days that there's the temple. And so at this point, there is a temporary house of worship. They do portable church, if you will. And they had a tent that they would take from place to place. And in the tent is where they would conduct the various acts of worship unto God. And on one particular occasion, Nadab and Abihu were supposed to be leading in this procession of worship, and they were supposed to light their censers or these little fire pans that would burn incense, and the smoke and the the fragrance would signal the presence of God with them. And here's what happened. Look with me in chapter 10 of Leviticus, beginning with verse 1. So Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. You get that picture? That is a gruesome picture. These new young priests... You know, obviously, guys that are new in the ministry have been there, done that. There's a whole lot we don't know. There's a whole lot that we don't do well sometimes. And I don't even have a clue what it means that they had unauthorized fire. Some have speculated they put special uh, things in it that would cause it to sparkle more or whatever. Who knows? The point is that they did something that God had not commanded. They had basically usurped God in just this little bitty act. Now, you would think as close as Aaron and Moses are to God, God would cut a little slack to Aaron's kids, to Moses' nephews, right? But no. He responds and he judges immediately, summarily. They are executed. And we're left scratching our head. Wow, what is that? What kind of God does that? Aaron felt the same way. He immediately goes running to Moses like Moses can do anything about God. And he tells on God, Moses, do you know what just happened? And he tells what happens. And here's Moses' response, verse 3. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, what's that phrase mean? I will be sanctified. Some of the other versions say, I will be seen as holy. I will be acknowledged as holy. You will not presume on me. And apparently the response is so categorically definitive, Aaron just shuts up. Nothing else to say. God has spoken. Now, real quickly, we'll look at another instance 
we'll move all the way over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is much later. This is hundreds of years later in the time of David. David has just ascended to the throne. He is now the king. And one of the first things as king that he wants to do is he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem to its rightful place. Now, you remember the Ark of the Covenant? Remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay. So it's this box that is holy and sacred unto the Lord. It's a box that had been fashioned back in the day of Moses, and the tables of stone upon which the Ten Commandments had been written were in this box, along with some manna that was a part of what God had been supplying the people all through the years. Some, some holy artifacts are inside the box. The box is covered with gold, and on top it looks like it's a little seat that's got uh, cherubim on each end. So it's like uh, angelic little beings looking over this seat of God. Now, they didn't really think God sat on it, but it was an indicator of God's presence with them. It was a very holy artifact for them. And they'd had a war with the Philistines, and the Philistines had captured that from them and taken and put it in their own pagan temple to their god, Dagon. So it was like the most profane, insulting thing they could do to Israel. Well, now... They've been defeated. David's coming to the throne, and he's like, okay, we're bringing that ark back. Got it? And everybody's, yay, yay, this is fantastic, this is wonderful. So uh, look with me in uh, chapter 13, verse 1. So David consulted with commanders of thousands and of, of hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and the Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. And then let us bring again the ark of our God to us. For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. Now keep your Bible. Bible open. So you, you get the picture. They decided they're going to bring the ark. This gold encased, precious symbol of God's presence with them. It had a ring on all four corners that you would slip poles through. And not just anybody, only the Levites could carry the ark of the covenant. And not just any Levite, a certain segment of the Levites. Could do that. No one was ever to touch the ark. The only proximity you could have to it was these poles through these rings. No one was ever to even look at the ark. And it was supposed to be placed inside the Holy of Holies, this one little area inside the tabernacle that was reserved for the presence of God among them. And so they go and they get this place, they, they, they go to this place and they get the ark, and these guys uh, with the poles hoist it up on a cart that's pulled by oxen, and they begin making this journey to Jerusalem. And all along the way, there are Hebrews on the streets cheering and yelling, and they're celebrating, and they're worshiping, and they're singing, and they're dancing. They're having this huge celebration about David's ascended to the throne and the, the glory of God's being restored to Israel. Okay, you got that picture? And so as they're making along and everybody's dancing and singing and all this party stuff is going on, the ox cart hits this bump, it gets shifted, and it looks like the ark is about to slide off the cart. And a guy by the name of Uzzah, who apparently is a Levite and of this special segment who gets to handle the ark, sees this transpiring and he reaches up with his hand and he touches the ark to steady it on the cart so it won't fall off. 
And the minute he touches it, boom, he's dead. And we look at that and we go, what? I thought he was being helpful. I thought he was being heroic. And basically God says, no, he was being presumptuous. And he was being arrogant. No one was to touch the ark. No one was to look at the ark. And he presumed on me. Now, all these centuries later, you know, sophisticated, modern, 21st century people like ourselves, we look at that and we choke, we gasp. We're like, what? How? How can God do that? How can God be like that? And of course, you move on through the stories that are found in the Old Testament. You know, God got so put out with sin, he sent a flood and killed everybody except for Noah, upon whom he had mercy, and Noah's family. And when God leads the Hebrews into their promised land that is inhabited by a group of people called Canaanites, He says, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to bless you to overcome and conquer this people. And when you do so, when you come into the land and you fight the battles, I want you to kill every man. I want you to kill every woman. I want you to kill every child. Do not leave one person alive. And we go, whoa. I mean, I always kind of thought women and children off limits, innocent. You know, maybe take out some soldiers, but wow. What about civilians? And the case goes on to say, God understood the wickedness of the Canaanites to such an extent, he was not going to allow any small influence to remain that could corrupt the Israelites. And he made it very clear to the Israelites, by the way, you guys are not righteous. You guys are not holy. You don't get this assignment because you're better than the Canaanites. You get this assignment because I chose you. And what you have as an example with the Canaanites and the Israelites is this. God chose to act with the Canaanites according to justice. They were an evil, wicked people. He wiped them out. He chose to to act with the Israelites according to mercy. They didn't deserve to be spared. He just simply chose to spare them. Because he was going to use them for other purposes in his plans. Are you going crazy right now? I look at these texts and I go crazy because I'm looking at them like a 21st century indulgent person that I am. What is abundantly clear, I think, to all of us is that we don't understand holiness. We don't understand sin. We don't understand justice. And we don't understand grace. And these are the core of who God is and how we get to relate to Him. And we don't don't grasp them. We don't fathom them. So from beginning to end in the Scriptures, God says, I am holy. You must be holy if you're going to have any relationship, any connection with me. Every 
sin is judged. Every sin ultimately is about treason. The judgment for every sin is death. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve. He said, in the, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you'll die. And that wasn't just a spiritual death, although that happened. They had a severing in their relationship with God. But it was also a physical death. You go, but they, they lived for hundreds of years after that. Yes, they did. For whatever reason, God gave them some kind of stay and delayed their execution. But eventually they died. And every person after Adam and Eve die because of sin. And some of you are too young to realize it, it, but it was not too long ago, just a few decades ago, every time there was a hurricane, every time there was an earthquake, every time there was a flood, every time there was a natural disaster, those things were referred to as what? Acts of God. Why? Because ancient people got it better than we get it. Everything that is befallen humanity is a matter of the judgment and the wrath of God upon a treasonous, sinful people. And when people are wiped out in a Katrina, that's an act that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's tragic. We hate to see the loss of life, and some of which we consider to be innocent life and so on. But in God's view and in God's scheme of things, there is no such thing as innocent life. It's all corrupted, and it's all condemned. So you go, well, that's why I don't like the Old Testament. I'm a New Testament guy, okay? I, there's a lot I don't understand in the Old Testament. I'll just accept that it's there, and I don't know what to do with it, but I'm a New Testament guy. I'm a grace guy. I'm a Jesus guy. My God is a God of love. My God is a God of forgiveness, Friends, there is no incongruity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Jesus and the God of the New Testament. And the most brutal act that takes place in all of the Bible is in the New Testament. God judges sin and disobedience once and for all in the New Testament. And it happens with the cross of Jesus. Now, this struck a theologian by the name of Hans Kuhn so profoundly a few decades ago that Kuhn said this. The most mysterious aspect of sin is not that sinners deserve to die but rather that the sinner in the average situation continues to exist. How is it that we even still breathe? How is it we still draw a breath? He said the question is not why does God punish sin, but why does he permit the ongoing human rebellion? Answer, because he's good. Answer, because he's gracious. Answer, because he is slow to anger. And slow to wrath. But that doesn't mean his anger and his wrath never come. They do. That doesn't mean his wrath and his anger are never expressed. They are. So, this most brutal act of divine justice happened upon Jesus. 
happened upon the Son of God. Which would have been the most unjust thing to ever have happened in all of history, except for the fact Jesus volunteered. Because here's, here's the one and only person who never sinned. Here's the one and only person who never acted treasonously against God. And yet he receives all the wrath, all the judgment of God for us. And he volunteered because he so loved us. So let me say it again. Every sin, every act of treason is judged and condemned and the penalty is death. Every single one. But here's the deal. The wrath of God is either poured out upon you and me as sinners or... The wrath of God is poured out upon our substitute who stands in our place, Jesus. And that's why the only hope, the only hope, the only hope is to be in Christ. Because he is the only substitute that can take the wrath of God. And it killed him. But he rose again. I'm going to close with this. Professor, brand new professor, was at his first school teaching his first class. Had 250 kids in his class. He's being very careful on the first day of school to say, here's how you earn your grade in this class. Here's how you will be evaluated. You, you must do it the way that I'm telling you it must be done. He said there's going to be three term papers that you will have to write over this subject matter. And the first is due on the last day of September. There will be no cause for a second chance. You either have it in the last day of September or you will get an F. Okay? So he's as clear as he can be. The month of September moves on. Come up to the last day. And out of these 250 students, 225, turn that paper in. Twenty-five students were there empty-handed. And they began to plead, Oh, Prof, we misused our time. We, we, we're not careful. Uh, you were exactly right. We were exactly wrong. We're so sorry. Could you just give us two more days? And then, uh, you know, the next paper, we will absolutely have it on time as you requested, as you required. And the prof decided to extend them a little mercy, and he said, okay. Another 30 days go by. We're at the last day of October, and 200 students come with their paper ready to turn in. Fifty now are empty-handed. And they're pleading their case. It's been homecoming. We all got sidetracked. We, we're sorry. We're, we're wrong. You were so, you know, you're this awesome prof. We, we don't want to disrespect you in any way. If we just have a couple more days, this will never happen again. And so the prof shows a little mercy, gives them a couple more days. And then he says, but the last day of November, the third paper, it's on time or there's an F. Right? So you know what happened. Another 30 days go by, they're at the last day of November. Now fully, 150 come with their paper ready to turn in, but a full hundred are empty-handed. They're not ready to turn in their paper. And they start the same song and dance. We're so sorry, we mismanaged this, we didn't take care of that, blah, 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 blah. And he said, I'm sorry, F. 
And he took out his grade book and he started putting F immediately on every name. And they began screaming and yelling. And how unfair is that? You can't do that. That's, that's not, you know, the way this place happens and blah, blah, blah. And he says, so, you say it's not fair. So, you want justice? Well, let's go back and put F's in those previous late assignments. Is that what you want? And he opens up to another page, and now they're yelling and screaming, No, 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 we're sorry, we're sorry. Could you just give us the one F? And in two months, with two acts of mercy, they had taken mercy for granted and were indignant when justice was exercised. Okay? Are we being honest right now? We are indulgent. We presume on God and His mercy. Mercy meaning that He would withhold the punishment that is due us. We presume on that. We take it for granted. And when something just comes along, it seems totally unjust to us. Friends, let's just imagine that ten people commit sin. And it's all equal sin. And they stand before God. And God says to this first five, you're judged and condemned. And he says to the second five, I'm going to extend mercy. You're forgiven. Is that just or unjust? We we don't understand mercy. Mercy is never owed. Never. Grace is never owed. Owed. It's something that is granted out of a graciousness, out of a love, if you will. And so out of that same ten, if nine received mercy and the tenth alone got justice, that's still right. Because God didn't owe mercy to anybody. God holds the keys to mercy, to grace, to forgiveness. And what we're trying to get about these days is this. We're in a season where God has seen fit to draw near to us. To shine the light of His brilliance upon us in a way that we can see the corruption that still remains with us. The decay that is still a part of who we are. Because it's a gracious invitation to repent. To turn to Him. To come clean. To be consecrated. to, To launch into a new chapter of doing life with God unlike any previous chapter we've ever had. And I, for one, don't want to be the same. I, for one, am grateful for where I am up to this point, but I want to go into a new chapter. I want to go into a new day. I want to continue to become all that God is going to shape and fashion my life to become. And so, 
We're inviting you to join us this coming Saturday for a special gathering of prayer and worship right here in this room. Start at 9 a.m. for all adults and for middle school and high school kids. And we're going to get before the Lord in just this kind of way. We're going to get before him in a way that says we recognize how presumptuous we have been. We recognize how treasonous we continue to be. We're going to come clean with you about that. We're going to give our hearts to you freshly about all of that. Please come. Please be gracious. Please renew. Please restore. Please rebuild. And because we sense this is his invitation, we believe he's going to deal graciously with us. Will you come? Will you be a part of that? Will you confess sins? Will you fast? Give me some instructions in your insert about how to go about that if you... If you feel so impressed to do that, will you pray? It's a special, special day of mercy and grace. Let's pray. Oh, God, so many hard things that we've thought about in these moments. And some of it's still banging around inside of us, and we don't know exactly how to sort it out and make sense of it all. But we are becoming convinced that you are terrible and awesome. That you are not safe, but you are good. That you are holy, but also full of mercy and grace. Oh, God, would you continue to be slow to anger and wrath? Would you forgive? Would you restore? Would you take us into a new chapter where we walk with you and honor you better than any other time in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.